This is a special announcement for our listeners in New York and Philadelphia. For the first time since our legendary Goth Socialist Variety Hour, the Antifada will be performing live with Minion Death Cult and Pod Damn America. First, on Sunday, September 10th, we'll give you a night you'll almost never forget. Steps from the Gowanus Canal at Littlefield in Brooklyn, USA. Then, on Super Tuesday, September 12th, we will be at the Franklin Ballroom in Philadelphia, PA with Well, There's Your Problem! And tickets are available now for both events, September 10th in Brooklyn, September 12th in Philly. You can find those links in the show notes. Will these historic shows usher in the first congresses of a grand podcast international? Or will we just be doing some goofy PowerPoints? We haven't really talked about it yet, but I hope to see you there. Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage 7.3 in our seemingly semi-arbitrary multiple decimal numbering system. Uh, John Dewey would be very angry about us about because I think there's like two 6.2s and I can't even remember like yeah. what the what the threes were. <laughs> the onus has really been on you because you're the one that sets up the recordings. So you're the one that has to go through all the various different files, published and unpublished. Maybe some of them started off as a 3.2, but then became like a 4.7. So Yeah, and then I there's a like- couple episodes that actually were in two different series because we touched <laughs> on both topics. Like <laughs> anyway. I'm not I'm not sure we designed the best system, but it is the system we've got. It's a kludge, right? Yeah, That's the term that, that you taught everybody, I think, last year. It's just mistake on top of mistake on top of mistake and now we hear it we're here at 7.3 doing it it's good to uh to be back on the first principles thing i think we've given this a couple month break um when we decided to go back into the debt crisis stuff but this this shit's really important so i'm glad we're back on it yeah i think uh but one is i think as one of my first principles I, i literally had a debate with uh with Chris of the Regrettable Century podcast today, and I may have, I may have been a little bit too harsh because I was like, "Look, we're both pessimists, but I get tired of my orientation towards the left being purely critique because we got burnt in the past." Yeah, and I see where that goes. I see where organizations that are that are like just critical of the left they tend to get in the cul-de-sacs, even when they're correct. Right. Yeah, like um, there are some extremely bright and perspicacious people on the left. Um, some of them who claim that the left is dead, even uh, long live the left, who um, bring you right up to the edge and then maybe disappoint at the end by uh, failing to have some sort of positive program to lay out. I understand that Marxists are somewhat allergic to uh, what is it? Uh, counting receipts in the cookshops of the future or whatever, whatever um, allegories you want to use for that. But, um, you know, we don't want to overdetermine things, certainly um, how social struggle looks. We want to pay attention to what's happening and understand that as the real movement. But at the same time, if we don't orient ourselves towards uh, some sort of practical, practicable vision, some sort of positive, positive vision, whether that's individually, whether that's, you know, as, media figures like you and I are, or hopefully, of course, as a more collective project, 
a party or a, a revolutionary union or um, you know some sort of community group uh, engaging in struggle, then yeah, it just becomes carping. And as much as we all love carping, um, and Lord knows social media is great for carping, uh, it does get a little bit old after a while. You and I, I can't, I, I can't even count how many times you and I have men mentioned Kronstadt uh, disdainfully, not as something that should take center stage in all discussions vis-a-vis what our political vision looks like, but instead as uh, an example of hue and cry, which, you know, a hundred years later, People still can't seem to get past. The, the point is, is that we, it's an important discussion to have about these historical issues, about our various failures, our long-term ones and our medium-term ones, and the ones that have just happened over the last 10 years or so, right? But we're not even, it feels like, and I think you would agree with me, in the position yet organizationally uh, or coherently to do anything about the lessons of Kronstadt, say. So we have to get up to that point. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would say is there's two kind of orientational mistakes that Marxists make, I think. And one is uh, confusing, you know, the negation or the negation of negation Hegelian language with with purely a critical orientation. So, And then the other one is confusing, you know, the need for praxis with gilding necessity into like a theoretical apparatus, which I think is what I accuse Marxist Leninists of doing where I uh, put a lot of groups. I mean, um, where, where this had to happen because of, because of the situations at hand, but we're not going to look at how we got to the situations at hand. They, right. the, the reasons are always external except for ourselves. Right. And I, I personally just from, from psychology, I see that trend. All, that's not just a left problem. That's a human problem. Mm. And it's something you have to, the, to both these sentences are things you have to check against, which is like, I will never tell someone who is being critical to shut up in a private scenario or in a scenario between socialists. I think one of the things that we have issues with today um, is that the kind of critique that would have happened in socialist papers and between socialists and in like rooms have all moved to performative venues like social media, but not just that, but I mean, that's the primary one. Mm. Um, Academic conferences are also a competitive venue. Right. And performative. Um, I mean, differently, but in, in, in a, in a similar way in, I, uh, I have discovered that, we have not been accountable by actually having to build something with this beyond, you know, uh, another children's crusade for some sect of 400 people. Like it's, 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 it's something that's really got on my mind as I kind of look at the labor struggles right now and go like, well, on one hand, I, I do feel and see that there's movement and there hasn't been in a long time. On the other hand, every stat that we're, that the social Democrats have been given people, or even some of the Marxist Leninists have been given people, uh, were juked in a way that actually hid the larger terrain of the situation. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's been 600 appeals to the National Labor Relations Board. 400 of them have been fucking Starbucks, like, mm -hmm. and, and like chunks of 20 people to 40 people apiece, which and is important, but not it's not a labor movement in any mass sense at all. 
Yeah, and the uh, the triumphalism, which you know, I get caught up in, you get caught up in, when you see something that looks organic and broad based, like say the Starbucks uh, workers' union, or incredible victories for the working class, like happened in that Staten Island warehouse uh, with Amazon, the triumphalism. Um, often runs up against the hard reality that of these, you know, 400 National Labor Relations um, Board um, act, actions, um, the chances of these workers ever actually sitting down and negotiating and bargaining out a contract with Starbucks Incorporated are very, very slim. We've seen how, you know, these first grade actions often run into years upon years of uh, legal action. Uh, purposeful slowdowns on the part of capital, where the momentum and in many cases, even the rank and file that voted initially uh, for a union um, are attritioned out over time through burnout and through various yeah. legal means. The, the famous example of this in an even smaller scale is Burgerville out in Portland, right? Mm. Which, which was tied up in contract negotiations for like a decade. Um, which was just the first example of a small chain in a very liberal area with with large community support still having huge problems trying to figure out how to work out a contract because they're strategically not in a strong labor position. Mm-hmm. And I, but I don't want to just like what I was pushing on Chris back on is like we can be pessimists. In fact, we should be frankly, like uh-huh. but there, there still has to be a sort of openness to the possibility of the preconditions for institutions. And I say the preconditions because I, what I always hear is like, we don't have the institutions, we don't have the power. And part of my response is like, yeah, I get that you're right. But also like, do you know the conditions of the first and, and second international? Mm. Because they were like illegal, they, yeah. like, like, you know, it, and they were not huge. Like we're, we're talking about initial startups of like, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people. And, and that's, you know, and that was a bigger part of the population of Germany at the time, but it's still not even like two or 3%. So it's, it's, it's important to remember that when you're like thinking about this from the standpoint of like 10, 15 years later, where there's mass politics. And then there's weird things that you can't see. So for example, I would have never predicted that the communist caucus, you know, or as I like to call it, uh, Viewpoint Magazine Caucus, mm. um, just so you get where they're coming from, mm-hmm. uh, would have an effect on um, the elections of the NPC in in the DSA. Because even at that convention, the news I was getting out of it until the NPC's vote was like, well, it looks like we got another rightward move in there. Heading back into the Democratic Party. I think when you and I were um, setting this up over text message, one of the things you wanted to mention was like, uh, whatever right word turn happens comes out of the NPC elections at the DSA convention. And it turns out uh, we can be pleasantly surprised about that. It seems like, um, you know, there's still a lot of kinks to work out. And I think you follow DSA politics um, a lot closer than I do. But it seems like there's actually positive movements happening in uh, in this socialist, uh, yeah, socialist institution. Although it's happening partly because the DSA is struggling, so it's struggling mm. to exist. Like the ease of the old, the the ease of the old orientation is becoming very clear. It cannot work. Like it will either be co-opted and die, or it will or it will die on the vine. And that's becoming clear to the membership as to what that actually means. That's going to be going to be uh, you know 
set for various things. I mean, one of the things that we have to, the, and we'll talk about this in our next episode, which is the general layout of the left, AKA why are there all these weird internet cargo cults right now? Yeah. Um, and, and weird and eccentric, like hybrid movements arising online too, without as of right now, connection to like the or, organic connections to the working class, but potentially with connection to like various, authoritarian capitalist states around the world right it seems like they don't even have organic connections to their own base as far as like the ability to actually organize in the material world and yet they are mass enough that i think if you're just walking in the world now you'll meet these people mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to before like like i remember in like uh the aughts and the in the lead up and aftermath of 2007 you saw a lot of very bizarre online subcultures but they would never get beyond like three four hundred people mm. like uh you know you might have like anarcho anarcho monarchism or mm. neo henry georgism or whatever yeah. like these yeah. there was tons of these movements um they didn't go anywhere and they all got liquidated into occupy eventually mm-hmm. and an occupy's failure meant to them being liquidated mostly into things like the dsa um or into the populist right yeah, aren't to the populist right, which is which, it was kind of a split, right? And, mm-hmm. and and what it indicated was the end of the nineties, um, movementism, movementism, and and it was kind of a generational torch, actually. I, I'm and I don't think it was all for the better either, but um, but it also generated uh, that that movementism needed to die. And I know for a lot of people, Occupy didn't feel that way. But for me, who remembered 1998, and that was like my first clarifying moment, going mm. and seeing Occupy was like seeing that in reverse. Mm. Um, it's like, okay, so now that period is over. And it's pretty clear to me that it's over. Occupy won't succeed on those terms. We have no idea what it's going to mean, right? Like, yeah. um, and the last time something like that happened was 1968 and 69. And the world wars and stuff obscure all those movementism for the middle of the century. So what, one of the things that I think that complicates this and we'll actually get to the positive program, it's like, no, we didn't just have socialism or barbarism. Guys, we chose barbarism and we mm-hmm. saw it in real life. Like, there was two fucking world wars. Yeah. Like, like, Barbarism was barbarism has been here before, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, to use that binary. And you had uh, geopolitical uh, barbarism there in the 20th century for much of it, and now we're leading towards uh, climate barbarism. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. sure you've seen the news coming out of Hawaii right now. So, barbarism will show its face again. The question is, will there be a socialist revival adequate to uh, to fight on those terms? And one thing I am going to say as part of our po- a positive program, we are communist, we are socialist, but we must recognize uh, if the the historical movement of proletarian politics does not adopt our name, mm-hmm. even if it even if it has our even if it has our original orientation uh, of class abolition and structure. And one thing I think what we have to deal with. And I think the left has dealt with it poorly, but I think the like PMC thesis and all this stuff, this comes out of a, the crisis of the fact class has been exists, but it exists both as a habitat and a role. Mm -hmm. 
So it is something that you do and participate in when you're doing it, like when you're a worker and you're earning a wage and you're building stuff. Um, but it is something that also you can be a worker and earning a wage and building stuff and also be highly invested in capital and also be invested in this strata competition of sociology, mm-hmm. of which Marxism doesn't actually speak that much about. There, There is stuff in early Marx that indicates that it would happen, like the alienation of the worker from the worker and interworker competition leading to all kinds of things. Marx acknowledges that as a problem in the 1840s, but mm. like, it's not a big part of what he's writing about because he's trying to build solidarity. Yeah. Whereas right now it seems like in our uh, attempt to understand the change in class terrain, we're actually trying to do the opposite all the time, which is like kick out the people that we think are bad mm-hmm. by inventing either, you know, a moral category to kick them out. And, and that would be kind of the left liberal way or a class category that's not coherent to kick them out, which is kind of like, I don't know, the post-left, but even some of the left way. And it's not that I don't see some of what they're complaining about, like, yes, liberal attitudes amongst college-educated. Like, It is a problem, but it's not a class problem per se. Uh-huh. And it's like pretending that blue-haired baristas are an enemy to the working class because of cultural issues. Just And yeah. that we laugh at that because it's ridiculous, and yet it's also common. Yeah, like it, it's like both stupid and yet you see it all the time. Like this weird gender coded resentment. Um, because I mean, like today I was actually laughing at this. And I'm like, what does blue hair even signify today? It doesn't signify like being part of a subculture movement. I know Mormon moms who dyed their hair. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really true. I mean, I think that that shows that the. Um like the quasi-class culture wars that we're going through right now, endlessly, it seems like. Go back all the way to the 1990s when when Mm -hmm. blue hair was more of a subcultural signifier uh, than it was today and where, like, um, the gender norms um, that were expressed, you know, in, say, industrial production were more ironclad than they certainly are right now. I can't imagine... Yeah, I I can't tell you how many times you see the same video of, like... um, oil working roustabouts um you know fighting with a line and somebody posting next to it like imagine a woman doing this work or or is this feminism would want a woman to have this job and then of course women do have these jobs i was about to say like uh i have worked with women and and like i'm on i i work in i i guess what could be classified as an industrial production and of the eight people on my gang right now one of them is a 57 year old woman um, so it's yeah. just the fact of the world right now, but there's like, um, there's this backwards looking tendency, right. To, as we've talked about plenty of times on this, not just on the left, but also on the right to look back to previous epochs and the gender division of labor. And also just like the technical composition of capital, uh, and imagine some glorious time that represented like real social relations, organic social relations, an organic sort of unity of society. Of course, that was never the case, but we have to understand where that comes from, which is a deep, deep discontent with the ways in which traditional masculinity, for example, has been shunted aside for some good, some bad reasons, but not been replaced with any way to like tutor and bring up uh, young male people uh, into the world in a way that allows them to socialize in a way that they become fully actuated people. This is not just a problem of the left or the right. This is a problem of capitalism, the dynamism of capitalism leading to vast and quick social changes that both the right and the left are 
painfully sometimes decades behind on getting a grip with because the whole apparatus is so out of everybody's control and the politics that we have are the politics whether you're again of the left or the right whether you're liberal conservative whatever it is politics of the 18th 19th and 20th century that are increasingly inadequate we with our positive orientation i think we hope to like imagine a politics that matches the tenor of the moment. Which brings us to a theoretical point that we both agree on, that I think this actually will be controversial on the left. The class politics today is, in general, not the politics of a positive building of a class, of the 19th century labor skilling the class, hmm. of, of labor educating the class. And this is something that I'm on, because I, believe, I, I think social alienation and social decomposition is real. Even though when I say that, people are like, oh, it sounds conservative. It's very real. It is not because people are just more immiserated. That's not the case. In fact, if you look at if you look at thing after thing after thing, you find like, well, immiseration has been fairly set since the 70s, and you saw major decreases like, like uh, black poverty dropped from 40% to like 20% in the 1980s, and kind of kind of got stuck there and then from the late 90s to to this day um but you you can you see you see this pretty consistently um you see a decrease in the value of whiteness but only a little bit um you see all kinds of things right you can and you can frame the these wars in these terms and get to some truths but you're going to miss the larger point of class decomposition um, and that gets us to this role part too, because one of the ways that the class, the, the, the upper strata of the working class wasn't bought off so much as stabilized. And I guess you can call that being bought off mm. was by making it, it being invested through property ownership, not productive property, not property that can basically as home ownership of this form of financial speculation, personal property as asset speculation. Right. Yeah. And, and, then, as, and as invest and as in a very real sense, as like personal deferred income. Right. Exactly. Are, are the way to at least secure, secure your class status for your family. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. If not deferred income, then, then like at least deferred class position, because, because the one thing we can say, is while all this income markers and whatnot have been okay, we we realize that um, there is the ability to live certain kinds of lives that were easy to do even before the post-war boom have become harder and harder and harder and more costly to do. So basically, like, and this is not something Marxism actually, it kind of speaks to it, but it didn't, it, it didn't happen in a way that Marxists predicted. Yeah. Where, where you have like this ability, like, okay, so during, from like 1920 to 1940, there was this immiseration period. And it was because in the United States, well, there was no more land we could easily steal. Let's just mm. put it frankly. Yeah, me and Chris um, have gone over this one pretty good. Right. Pretty well. But then, there was a reversal um, which came from the post-war boom. I get mad at people like Peter Turchin who basically don't deal with the fact that like, Oh, the post-war social compact was possible because of three reasons. The Soviet union scared the United States people of the workers internally. Um, there was a shit ton of, uh, of not profits, but just flat out wealth left in, in the, you know, it wasn't destroyed in the war, but that we could 
outsource our overproduction to over places to build them back up after the war, thus thus um, being able to produce more than we needed and sell it somewhere without without engendering mass scale competition until the Japanese and Germans caught up. Right. Um, and then uh, third was um, a social compact with with relatively high tax rates, but because there were so much seeming prospects because of the ability to outsource the overproduction that you could have a, a public-private infrastructure that was functional where the state didn't actually provide it itself, but could have these corporations provide it, um, thus removing the problems of, you know, early bourgeois legal structures in America. Yeah. But, um, you, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you. I, I thought of an example where we also need to think of, like, the scale uh, of uh, not just the economy, but also politics. Because when you read the literature about... Uh, what Joshua Freeman called uh, the unique social democratic polity that was New York City between, say, the 1930s and certainly by the 1970s with the financial uh, crisis, uh, there's a liquidation of it. But one of the reasons why there is a mass social base to have things like a public hospital system, um, pub free public universities, uh, very, very cheap and affordable uh, public transportation that gets workers and people all over the city um, was because the petty bourgeoisie, the small capitalists, the shop owners, but also the small factory owners, uh, light manufacturing and whatnot, in these dynamic sort of small shop industries in New York City, were dealing with workers who lived within these areas within the city. It's when there's a spatial divide, when... Um, the working class is literally decomposed, where the um, the ruling class even is in, is no longer living in the city center. That mass support for social programs that help out, you know, the working class that help to um, to reproduce uh, labor power, all of a sudden start to lose a lot of their purchase among parts of the the, the sub elite and the elite, uh, because all of a sudden now you're talking about an expanse of people like across. Uh, the entire metropolitan area and capital no longer feeling bound to the short, small shop sort of network structure of accumulation that was happening in the right after the uh, the post war period. Well, this is another so, interesting. But but but, but but to tie that in with with what you were saying, you know, that decomposition uh, and the, the decay. Uh, that's happening within society, right? This isn't like an idealist or a moralistic uh, conception. In fact, the basis for that is the changing composition of capital, the changing um, networks and modes of commerce and accumulation such as they exist. And the fact that like uh, what were once solid core mass industrial working class communities are now spread out geographically uh, all over the place. And that's something we have to account for if we're going to have a positive orientation because the sort of disorientation that social media gives and the individualization of the fulfillment of consumptive choices is something that leads to a massive individuation, atomization and alienation of all the workers of this country over the last 50 years or so. Something that can't just be, um, brushed aside and say, we need to reproduce like a new deal type coalition of industrial workers. Right. Right, but, but I guess this is my one of my big po pushbacks on the Bernie era New New Deal stuff. Is I'm like, you do not live in that world. I, I actually really push this on Corbynism, 
yeah, particularly in the UK. I'm like, you do not live in that world. You yeah. do not have the industrial base. In the UK, you're a fucking island. You no longer have an empire. Yeah. Um, like you need to deal with reality and face it as it is. And and with us, we have to deal with the decomposition of the working class. And what what do I mean by that? Um, we've seen lumpenization of working class people. So that we've seen the kinds of instability that we associate a with be people being forced into the reserve army of labor or choosing to leave and live amongst the reserve army of labor and the kind of social problems that are associated with that now get well into the working class itself, even well into the upper strata of the working class, like the middle class. Um, oh, trust me. I know. I see yeah. it day in and day out. Uh, the kids are not all right. I mean, this is basically on our on our sheet here that we're ticking things off. Uh, this is what we wrote as class politics today is the politi politics of decadence and decomposition. And more and more, um, say what you want about the Brenner and Riley thesis, right? There is something more of a zero-sum type uh, politics happening right now in this country. And uh, the decomposition uh, and decadence is, and I'm going to sound like a whack job for saying it, for putting it in these terms, but it is like a spiritual deficit that is going on right now. The spiritual deficit comes from the fact that there are no great battles, it seems like, to be fought. This is why, it, you know, the end, the history ended. We are all in this consumer utopia and this social media, have your voice heard sort of utopia. There doesn't seem to be any directionality um, whatsoever. Um, no great projects to fulfill as as humanity or certainly not even as the, the working class. And so people are left in a deep and abiding malaise. When you talk about like what like the 19th century labor movement was trying to do, you said skilling and composing the working class. This is much more of a model, I think, for us to imagine than one where we're simply finding people where they're at and getting them to vote. Uh, in the correct way for the right party, because it's going to take tons and tons and tons of actual work on the ground um, in communities and in uh, workplaces to try to recompose, if it's even possible, something like a mass working class, not just in this country, but around the world. I think we have to deal with the fact that um, on one hand, if you look at Lenin's criterion for a revolutionary situation, we meet most of them, including one that I think most socialists forget, uh, it's not one that Marx talks about, but Lenin actually is apt on this. The ruling class itself has to be divided, has to have too many kinds of elites competing with each other, has to have an inability to maintain their old way of rule. There's no way they can. Um, and for those of you who go, well, they are maintaining the old rule. I'm like, no, they're not. They're changing, actually. There's been a shift of means of rule from the Cold War norms into this permanent crisis state norm mm -hmm. that started with the war on terror and has been pushed back into the war against fascists. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of leftists who do not like being pointed out that they are playing a role similar to what neoconservatives were doing in the, in the aughts and strengthening the repressive parts of the state, mm. but they are. Yeah. And they think they can control it just like the neoconservatives thought they could control it too. But motherfuckers, capital is still the boss. Mm -hmm. And that means profit margins are still what this is all about. International competition is because of that. Mm -hmm. And 
And for example, with things like multipolarity, and you know, I talk about this a lot. People think I'm a critic of multipolarity, and I just like that's like being a critic of rain, <laughs> a critic of gravity. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> it's like no, these are large state dynamics that there have never been a a, a a consistent unipolar hegemonic world. But seeing it as a good or as an eel is a mistake. It is just something that is. You can take advantage of those conditions or you cannot. The state, of, nothing. The, state of the world such right. as it is and such as it may change is not going to do the work for us. It's not going to do the work for you. It's not going to set the preconditions uh, necessary for some sort of fight back. It is the working class itself that has to do that. And a multipolar world, we should anticipate it because it feels as though it's coming down the pipe and have a positive orientation towards what that might be. But it is not like a deus ex machina because let's be clear while the United States, we've said this a million times in our various different collaborations, while the United States is the central hegemonic capitalist power, a, it's not the only one and B it's not almighty. And, you know, just a relative decline of U.S. hegemony isn't going to be enough to spark off a socialist movement that doesn't seem to be in existence right now. Communist forces that as of right now are at least in abeyance, if they even uh, are in, you know, um, uh, in an embryonic form. Which I guess gives me gives me to a practice point, because this this actually is related. Communists stand for the interests of the whole class. Not the whole class in one fucking country, not yeah. the whole class in one sector, not the class that doesn't have or does have blue hair. Right. Not yeah. the, like not like, the not the uh male gendered um, <laughs> or female gendered at you know uh membership yeah. of the class. Yeah, nor do I and, and I'm one of these people who like will talk about the, I think the great mistake of of class reductionism. And I when I, I don't use that term because it's been it's been abused to the point that people will now wear it proudly. Mm. But the problem with class reductionism is like it's just like the problem with race reductionism. I remember it, the, the like whole uh, Clarence Thomas Sotomayor debate where like Sotomayor is literally like, well, class is a is an epiphenomenon of race, and I'm like, that's just statistically false. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. um, it's absolutely not true. But there is a way in which race in its creation was used to be a disciplinary mechanism on class and a way of primitive accumulation mm -hmm. um, that developed, actually, I think it developed before capitalism, but it, it develops kind of concurrently to it. So there is no easy way to make it go away. But one of the things I tell people is like, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and say that we're going to live in like a world without, without racial bigotry. And uh, or prejudice or hatred, person, yeah, yeah, um, or xenophobia or any of that yeah. under communism. I just think it's going to be a lot less of important when we're not organizing society around it, like, yeah, um, or when there aren't things like scarce good job positions at stake in it, you know, which, which, or who is going to get a small business loan and who isn't, who's going to be accepted into an accredited capitalist university or public university, you know, the, these are the sort of pressures that only add to this 500, 600 year cauldron of, um, of hatred and prejudice that has, as you said, was not created per se by capital, but was arises uh, coeval, co let's say, with capitalist yeah. development for very, I think, real historical reasons. But that also means we can't get the reactionaries out. Like we don't give them power, right? But reactionaryism, and we use that word for a particular, is a, 
is kind of a temperament as much as it is anything coherent. Yeah. Um, and, and liberalism, while it does have an ideological core and a project or whatever, but it's also kind of a temperament as much as it is anything coherent. Both those tendencies, and we could call them different things if you want to remove the political content of those words. I don't. I haven't figured out what we call them, but we should maybe. Um, would exist in a viable socialist and communist movement. They would. You can't imagine that everybody is going to become an ur- urban bug man or bug woman or bug other. Yeah. Are, are there are there going to become like, you know, the the great shit kicking proletariat, yeah. truck working, you know, Bud Light drinking, etc. You, you uh, the, one of the great battles that we have right now, I think, are um, are to create some sort of movement that can synthesize um the various different critiques coming from the rural areas with the ones that are coming from the urban areas uh and the exurban areas right because if you don't have both aspects both sort of spatial aspects of class life and class power integrated into something and you and in order to integrate the interests um and drives of say rural working class people and urban working class people you can't simply put them together in a room and assume that you know issues of development or issues of housing or even issues of race and gender are going to magically work themselves out part of a a positive political project is going to have to be finding ways to compromise between these two things and understand that in terms of um, very real struggles for equality, there remain right now and will, I presumably through a a socialist or communist transition, remain uh, uneven development uh, in terms of uh, integration uh, and, uh, you know, free association and equality among working class people. It's just a fact, and it's one that we're going to have to deal with uh, in, in practical terms. Yeah, I think there's a lot we have to deal with in practical terms, and this is something that that the orientation towards the, the autonomous unity of the class does mean, for example, I mean, I do kind of take the the landline that like you can't get the reactionary out but you also don't tail them you don't pick up their yeah. fucking talking points like it's such it, a cheap it, it's such a cheap move to just pick up their talking points and run with it as though it's it represents the or even a authentic expression of working and class it, uh, culture it, right and also it, fr- it fractures the class as a whole because you're then saying i am willing to kick some people out like um and and i I, I kind of say, like, you know what? If you're willing to to operate with us, we're not going to leave you behind, and that means protecting you on other grounds. Mm. Um, that also means things in terms of practice, like, for example, um, uh, yes, trans people are at most what five to ten percent of the working class at the biggest yeah. estimate. Like, um, uh, but they are part of it because one thing I've, we've noticed about sexuality is while it might show up slightly skewed in certain class demographics in a liberal sense of class demographics more than others. For example, like, uh, yes, LGBTQ people have slightly more disposable, disposable incomes and have slightly higher income brackets because they don't generally have children. Right. And they do have children. They had to actively do so. It could have been an accident. Exactly. So, yeah. So like, but that's, that's the explanation of the difference, right? Yeah. But in general, like you can be born with, you know, and be queer from any fucking class background. 
which me which also means as a solidarity to working class people we don't attack the ruling class on things that affect and are of working class people so we don't attack people in race we don't attack people in gender we don't attack people in sexuality because those things exist in our class and in the ruling class and it's reactionaries can seize on that shit to create a cross-class alliance between, right. say, white workers against black workers or cis and straight workers. Against Which almost workers. never works out for the white workers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because like, well, it's, like, it's that sausage strategy, right? It's right. divide and conquer. And we and, and you know th there is a there is a kind of post left critique that's kind of correct where like oh these diversity initiatives that put white working class people against black working class people for areas of equity and justice actually really do. Uh, highly decreased class solidarity even towards black people in ways that makes it hard to fix things like black poverty. Which is why, just as you don't kick reactionaries out of a communist organization solely on that criterion, if they're willing to fall in line with the larger class program and hopefully learn and grow from that, so too at the same time. Uh, but you, you don't allow them to have power over the organization in the meantime. Same thing with Let's just call them progressives, right? Mm. Let's call them radical liberals, whatever sort of term you want to use. Those people too, you know, are are part of a, a ideological grouping and a, a, a habitas, we could call it, that is inimical, inimicable um, to real working class solidarity. And we see that practically with the way in which so much of the energy of the left has been di diverted uh, towards this sort of additive conception of social justice uh, where class becomes just one of the three, one peg in the three-legged stool of, um, of oppression, intersectionality, yeah. for example. These people, too, must be marginalized. Uh, or at least their the, ideas must be marginalized. One of the things that I point that someone pointed out to me, I think it was uh, the host of What Is Politics, actually, just to be clear. We were talking about the Kimberly Crenshaw article and we were actually, you know, we both talked about how we're kind of initially sensitive to what it was trying to do about intersectionality, but then you realize what it was aimed at doing. Getting rid of seniority. So, thus putting more arbitrary power back in the hands of managers, which probably also wouldn't work out in, in, in favor of black women either, yeah. but... but but that's what it would have done if the original lawsuit had won on those grounds. And so you, you realize that and you realize like, okay, well, what do we do about that? Well, clearly we do have to do something about like intersectional oppressions and bigotries and whatever, but clearly we can see even in this instance, in the first instance of instantiation, that if you don't think about, if you're just looking at the results from that perspective, you could actually undo the system in a way that makes everything for everybody worse. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, I used to think about this in the shift in discussion about say white skin privilege and underprivilegedness, which is what we used to talk about mm. to the shift to just removing privilege. Cause I'm like, well, you can remove privilege if we all live in a hell world. Sure. You can be, like, like yeah. we could all be equal in a shit, you know, <laughs> yeah. in a grave. I mean, like yeah, or living in a cave, right. Which is sort of like the right, the right wing critique of, of socialism. One of the things they'd always say, well, equity will always be the lowest common denominator. You're not going to raise people up. And then when I think about the way we talk about privilege discourse, and this is why I think communists shouldn't use it, um, 
because like well there's an un there's an unacknowledged implication where like well that answer the right wing critique is accepted in that answer that well we could just make everybody shitty yeah and and that will fix the problem and one of the things that I've really thought about this and in discussions of like lifespan for example um, and medical outcomes is like well the white working class people and white poor people are dying younger and younger so we've seen a decrease in the the lifespan gap between black poor and white poor but it's not because black poor people are living a whole lot longer there's there've been some gains there but it's marginal mm. it's mostly that white people are dying younger and then when you phrase it this way and i've seen this in real life like i i argued with a colleague of mine a black colleague of mine when she's like why should i care about the the white working class all they've ever done is shit on me and i'm like mm. Have they or have just like white middle class people that you know shit on you in a very because you're not hurting them by like, but also I was just like, okay, but this isn't gonna do anything for the benefit of black people. This mm. like this is it, this is a politics of resentment. Now, I, I get it, like, I actually emotionally completely understand where she's coming from. I like. You start talking to me about Wasp, and I get like, well, fuck those guys. Like, you start talking to me about the English. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a running joke, but it's also, it is my real inclination. It's like, well, me unless too. you're a socialist, fuck the English. I don't give a <laughs> shit about them. But... I, was, I was raised that way, I must say. What was left of my, like, ethnic white urban status came mostly through in, like, various different stereotypes and disdains towards other white ethics <laughs> it's just like it's it's very much like you don't trust those waspy bastards which is yeah. the way I grew. like you live among them they'll kill you you don't and but hashtag so not all wasps right? yeah hashtag not all not all but but at the same time you know at the end of the day um the working class of of, of even of even that godforsaken island <laughs> uh, the British Isles and that godforsaken part of the southern part of it, the English part. We need to make communism in order to have a crack developmental program in order to bring uh, England and Great Britain back into, you know, the the, the path of, uh, of uh, in, into the realm of uh, freedom out of the realm of uh, necessity that they're in right now. I mean, it's it. it, it I see no good that's done to the world just by watching England get shittier. No, I know. Right. As much right. as it might pull our heartstrings. It, it, as, much, yeah, as much as sometimes <laughs> I'm like, you deserve it. Then I have to remind myself, actually, most the most English people actually don't deserve it. Of course. It. And then this is like, this is how how it's easy for or for all of us too, you know, not just as working class people, but even as communists, um, to like have... Have, I think a general inability to let go of the parts of the past, parts of history that are right now relatively contingent, right? Yeah. Like there's no English person with the exception of maybe some lords who are sitting on cotton, i.e. slave money, um, who really had a hand much in the empire. Maybe there were like towards the dying end of it in the 1950s and 60s, there were some English working people who were like colonial officers or whatever, right? But that whole phase of history has moved away. And what britain and england are right now just like what germany and france and italy or china is right now is radically different from the roles that those regions played in the past and so like 
you know, the who and cry over Con Kronstadt uh, idea also, you know, is tied into our various chauvinisms uh, towards different peoples and their histories. Yep. I mean, you know, there, there are there are peoples that I am uncomfortable with. And uh, people, oh, Varner's racist. I, you know, I, it was funny. I took the implicit bias test. Mm, how'd you do? Uh, uh, and I actually really did show up as biased against white people. Oh shit! Like I was like I was like <laughs> oh, so I, apparently I am actually woke. I don't like <laughs> all, uh, the, all the anti-Semitic <laughs> conspiracy theorists are like, yes, of course we are vindicated. <laughs> uh, well, you, you'll get, this is funny too. Uh, you know who I, I apparently I'm a self-hating Jew because oh. because um, if pick between Jews and Muslims, I tend to choose Muslims. <laughs> so it's well, the, they were your chosen community <laughs> in a very real sense when you lived in the Middle East. Yeah, I did live in the Middle East, <laughs> and uh, and I think you know. Um, I, I that, that tells you a little bit about what does about those implicit bias tests. If you're like me, who's kind of a contrarian, and you're just like. Well, fuck my community. They suck. I know them. I deal with them all the time. You deal with them? Like, I know what white people are like. Um, oh, yeah, big time. Et cetera. The thing is, I fight that. I also fight that orientation. I used to be, I used to be like, when I was one of these people who rolled their eyes every time, I'd be like, that's so white. And now I'm like, no. I used to do, do the same thing, too, up until like five or six years ago. And it was, I think, really um when that when that reached a fever pitch and turned into like just a bad meme and like a bad joke that i i stepped back for a second and i said what is it that's being critiqued right here like what what a value is done by saying like white people this and white people that and uh, thankfully that's kind of died out over the last several years i think i still hear it but it's I, it has become a lot more gauche and yeah it, it's uh I used to make jokes about white genocide and then like, I will actually have to hand it to um, like the weird dissident right people that I sometimes happen upon online. You know, there it's not because the Jews are doing it or it's not because the globalists or the elite are doing a great re replacement. It's because of the decomposition of the white working class alongside the rest of the working class, the rise of uh, addiction and fentanyl and deaths of despair. And it's not actually funny to joke about white genocide. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really not because there are like serious, serious social pathologies going on in those communities that there is in a sense, some rational kernel to like the metaphysical shell that the weird right wing um, conspiracists are coming up with. It's just that there's no conspiracy and it's not against white people. It's a dynamic uh, systemic uh, production of, de of, uh, of working class decay uh, caused by capital itself. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to put it in another way, maybe, um, just to illustrate to our audience. And I think then then we can go to the to the Patreon portion of the yeah. learning about that. But uh, nicely done. Um, I used to think about the weird ass conspiracy cultures amongst oppressed peoples. I grew up in central Georgia. And so down the street from me were these people called the Nawabians. You may have heard about them. Wesley mm -hmm. Snipes was involved with them. They they went they went out kind of in a almost Waco style blaze of glory. We don't talk about them because they're black, but mm. um, they had a giant compound with like big pyramids. They were Afrocentrist. They denied that slavery happened and said that was like a, they, they had developed stuff. Um, all the Yakub stuff that you hear from like uh, the, the weirder parts of the, of the pre-reformed nation of Islam, that was yeah. even bigger huh. there. They're like, well, 
Well, you know, um, like white... slavery was faked to make us think that we're not actually powerful. Yes, the... and because yeah. exactly, like they're not powerful enough to enslave us. Like right. that would have never happened. So, like, um, not for real. Um, and I used to think about that, and I kind of got sympathetic to the problems of, and I thought about the Nation of Islam a lot. Right? Someone pointed out to me the Nation of Islam is anti-Semitic. And, 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 and believe some weird racialist shit, but it is also coming out of a place of the, it's not coming out of a place of power. It's coming out of a place to explain your suffering. Mm-hmm. And even though it looks the same. And so this is one of the weirder parts about white conspiracy theorizing mm-hmm. is part of it is coming out of a place of power and manipulation and resentment. But part of it is coming out of like, why are things so bad yeah. when we were told we had it made? Right. If and those two if we things, are so powerful, then why is it like this? Right. And those two things run into each other. And it isn't the first time that's happened. I do think like the the weirder theories around fascism and the way fascists would use those conspiracy theories, both in Italy and way more in Germany to to take advantage of this, was based off like, well, if we're so awesome as we've said we've been since we consolidated as a nation, not even that long ago. Yeah, and we got our and we got our ass kicked in the world war. And we weren't even like you know, just to, to remind people, like in World War One, I, I try to put myself back in the position of the SPD in World War One and how you would justify it, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were justifying it as an anti-imperialist war against Russian autocracy and British and British Empire, and those mm-hmm. were the two bad guys, like mm-hmm. of of socialism in the nineteenth century. And I think Lenin was right to call them out on this, but Lenin was basically saying, like, you cannot pick a side in an inter-imperialist war. Mm -hmm. And if you even waffle a little bit on this, even for good reasons, he actually talks about the Serbian Serbian national liberation. He's like, we should support Serbian national liberation in other contexts, but in the context of an inter-imperialist war, we have to stay our hands. So instead of an abstract principle, then, it's about... The, the practical essence of that moment and that struggle and the political choices that have to come out of it when you're uh, like you said, like Lenin well, said there is an abstract principle is don't feed empire e- e- even if it's against other empires right like that and that's a hard one to get people to do like Certainly for, nowadays last year and a half or so it is right so like we should like when i talk about this like we should we should not have anything to say about multipolarity we should accept it in instance we shouldn't fight it Hmm. Um, so what but, would that mean? That would be, I guess, backing NATO and uh, right, yeah, exactly. The As but, the left is often accused of, and some leftists do, yeah. like although they have no real support, like they don't change anything. Neither neither side of this have much they effect. Give moral support, anyways, <laughs> but, or at least the uh, self confusion. But but I think you know the principle is no, we can be defensist on one state or couple. You can be defensist on Cuba. You can be defensist on China. You can be defensive on Vietnam, even though none of those states would I consider properly. Well, Cuba's the closest, mm. properly speaking, being socialist. Right. And, and frankly, also, I just want to remind people in their own rhetoric, they do not claim to be. They claim to be transitioning to it. I think the mm. last thing I see is is China claims that it will it will have achieved socialism by 2050. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, now, that's a rhetorical game. And I'm admit that. But but I actually do believe we could defend that. We should also defend places even like Russia from Western aggression. Yes. But that does not mean that we should ever 
be singing the praises of their uh, of their polities, and to do so is corrupting. Even to waffle on it from a yeah. for a minute, and and like it's personally corrupting, it's institutionally corrupting, and it's ideologically corrupting as well because right. you're bringing an element of chauvinism into your the basis of your politics that it'll be very hard to, to extirpate. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall. This wreckage I-